When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Mel. And I'm Trish. And this is the Don't Give a 50 podcast. Let's make getting old the new gold, as oh, you darling. say. I like that. I like that one too. That was mine. I think that was mine. Hi, 50 Ishes. It's Mel and Trish. Welcome to another episode of Don't Give a 50, a podcast for midlife women who dare to be awesome and just don't give a 50 like us. Thanks to Ali who wrote a review about our Just the Two of Us episode where Trish and I sat down and chatted about the different types of friendships. She wrote, loved eavesdropping on you two. My beach town might be a bit more than a few metres away, but I'm looking forward to hearing about your weekly adventures. So Trish, I think that might be a reference to your friends who eavesdrop on the beach. <laughs> I know, I love that. Yeah. About what all the young people get up to the yeah. night before. Living vicariously through them. Which I have to say I do. So I've met these two young girls at the gym that I go yeah. to and like one's 20 years younger than me and one's 30 years younger than me and Monday morning oh, get together yes. when they tell the debrief. me. Oh, it's Love just, a debrief. It is just an absolute Does ripper. bring back any memories, Melinda? <laughs> the odd memory here or two. But I tell you what it, it tells me is that I have no desire, zero desire to be that age again. I can tell you that right now. But let me tell you, we had some fun when we were, didn't we? We so did, Trish. Yes. It was it was good times. I just don't want to be back there now. So, Trish, I feel like some people are born destined to have fascinating lives on multiple levels, and today's guest easily falls into that category. Oh, my God, she is mm. amazing. Yeah, and so nice. Oh, my to gosh. Do, not, I don't so, know what I expected. No, but, but just it's so nice to see someone that is so... So accomplished, yeah. so intelligent mm. and has lived such an amazing life and met some incredible people yeah. and been to so many incredible places but is so grounded, down to earth, Normal. welcoming and wonderful. So we're talking to Anita Jacoby. So she had senior production roles with all of Australia's commercial networks, as well as the ABC, SBS, Foxtel. She worked on programs such as 60 Minutes, The Gruen Transfer, Witness, Laws, Good Morning Australia and The Today Show, and that's just a few. She was the first woman in media to be appointed managing director of an international production company. I mean, Even those roles in that era, you know, like she's her career yeah. spans into the 80s when it was a big boys club. It so was, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Amazing. She holds positions on numerous boards, including Women in Media, Headspace and the ABC Advisory Council. And once again, that's just to name three. And what's interesting for me is that we don't often hear of the stories or the stories about the people that produce these shows because they always remain in the background. They live in the shadows, if you like, of the hosts or the compares. And yet they themselves... The talent. The talent. Yet they themselves have such fascinating lives. They themselves are the talent. Yeah, well, I think she is. We also talk about often Mm. the extraordinary people 
Yeah. That are under the radar. Correct. And yeah. Anita is definitely. And we want to bring them to ladies. the forefront, which is what we did by asking Anita to come and have a chat to us, which she um, which, which she graciously did. Oh, we were a little bit nervous, oh, you know. Here is this always nervous. so professional. I know. So professional, I can't even say the word. Master the English language. <laughs> So more recently, Anita has written a memoir, Secrets Beyond the Screen, which covers her career in Australian television and, fascinatingly, the discovery of a secret part of her father's life. So this was a father whom she shared a very close, loving relationship with and thought she knew so well. So I've spent the last two days speed reading Anita's book and let me tell you, there are some compelling chapters in there, Trish. And we're not going to spoil them all for you with our interview with Anita. We're just going to drop a few little nuggets of gold. But let me tell you, so fascinating, so intriguing and so damn interesting. Enjoy. So Anita is joining us today from the northern beaches of Sydney. Hello and welcome to Don't Give a 50, Anita Jacoby. How are you both? Well, we're good, and it's very nice to virtually meet you. It is very nice. <laughs> thank you. Thank you, thank you. And you're right, I am in the northern beaches of Sydney, and it's a beautiful day, but freezing. Okay. <laughs> All right. It's it's pretty nice yeah. here too, not so it cold. Nice. But it's not raining, which is great. Yeah, oh, after the year we've had. I'm pleased to hear that. <laughs> yeah. Honestly, you guys have copped it for so long. We have, all year, pretty much. All year. Yeah. Anita, there are 18 chapters in your book and I think it would be easy to chat about each one, but we don't have 18 hours, unfortunately. So I've selected <laughs> some of my favourite moments and those I think will resonate most with our 50-ish tribe, okay? So I want to start with your impressive career as one of Australia's most distinguished and awarded television producers. So when you first joined 60 Minutes, and I don't want to bang on about 60 Minutes all the time because you were, you know, you were a pr- producer on so many different shows, but it's very, very high profile. So I think anyone that's yeah. a 50 year show will just immediately recognise 60 Minutes. So when you first joined yep. 60 Minutes as a television producer, you were one of only two women working in that role. And you talk about the notion of pretty privilege and how that mm. has changed somewhat now. So could you talk us through that and how challenging was it to work in that environment? Oh, well, first of all, um, I only got the job at 60 Minutes because I had been uh, the two I see the second in charge at the Today Show, the breakfast show that we all still watch today. In those days, it was hosted by Liz Hayes and George Negus. And so I was the second in charge there. And three times I put my hand up to become the executive producer. And three times I was passed over. And I knew it was because I was young and female. And in those days, there were no women running television shows. And I'm talking about the mid-1980s. Uh, mid to late 1980s, there were no women running news, current affairs, sports, general programming. There were women occasionally in publicity and PR and programming, but not actually running shows. So after I was passed over for the third time to be executive producer and I was doing the job, I actually went and talked to my dad and he said, well, look, if you don't like it, resign. And so that's what I did. I went in and saw the head of news and current affairs at nine, the old nine, not the nine of today. Yes, yes. And, um, and and I resigned and he couldn't believe that I would resign and throw in a job. And I said, well, you've left me no choice. I mean, you know, a young woman, I'm ambitious. I want to do more with my life and my career. And so about a day or two later, he came back and he offered me a job on 60 Minutes, which was then like the biggest show in Australia. And, you know, it was the most extraordinary experience because I think there was one other, as you said, one other female producer. And then there were 12, 14 blokes. Um, the executive producer, the supervising producer, the chief of staff, the senior producers, they were all men. But what an exciting career opportunity because I knew, I knew it was like a, it was a passport to travel the world and tell the kind of stories that you all of us dream of telling. And so I was just thrilled to get that opportunity. Isn't it a shame that it, um, it took you to actually get to the point uh, where you resigned? It's almost like that's when they valued you, your skill, you know, your um, intellect, your work ethic, you had to actually but go to him and... a brave and ballsy <laughs> move. I think it's well, brilliant. Well, look, okay, uh, I, Not but a lot I've of got to say, I didn't, I, no, they wouldn't, but I didn't have a house. I didn't have yep. a mortgage. Yeah. I didn't have children. So I didn't have those things that would have prevented me from doing that. And I felt confident in myself. I felt confident and I, I backed myself. And I realised that it's really important, particularly as women, mm. that we back ourselves and back our judgment. 
Because so often, you know, we we just kind of, we put ourselves in a box and just cast ourselves in this way. And sometimes we just have to push back and say, no, hold it, I can do this. And And I'm better than what you're seeing in me. And I mean, I even had Liz Hayes walk in and talk to the, you know, before I, I resigned, talk to the head of news and current affairs and say, look, Anita's doing the job. Yeah. She should be promoted into that role. And it wasn't was, rocket science. What was the reason that they kept employing men instead of was you? Was it just the boys' club? Was it just that? Yeah, I mm. think I think particularly uh, years ago, I and mean, it's not so apparent now because. We've got all these, you know, uh, we look at our workforces and we think we've got to have diversity of voices in there, whether it's, you know, ethnicity or gender or whatever, sexuality. It's that you must have, to, in those days, there was no diversity. I'd yes, walk yes. into the newsroom, you know, at 4 o'clock, 3.30 or 4 o'clock in the morning when I was doing the Today Show, and there were all blokes. There were just yes. hardly any women. And so I think... In those days, people would just employ, like the unconscious bias, you would employ somebody who looked or went to the same school as you or looked like you or played golf or loved tennis or, you know, drive motorbikes, whatever it is, and you'd put them in that role because you felt more comfortable with them. Mm. And I don't think, and we women have learned to find our voices more, I think, since then. I don't don't think we all had a voice in those days. I think we felt we were very pigeonholed and who and what we were and what we could do. And I think net today we've got our voice and we should use that voice. 100%. So you were, in a sense, you were part of that first wave. You're or a trailblazer, Anita. You were a trailblazer. <laughs> Thank you. We love that. Well, I don't look, no, no, I think there were a lot of other women before me mm-hmm. who were trailblazers in other ways in the industry, in film and television, yep. but in actually running television shows. Uh, and I'm not talking about the ABC because I think the ABC would have, like Caroline Jones, who, who left us recently, who passed away, the former yes. you know, uh, host of Australian Story, she was a trailblazer. Yeah. She was the first woman to be you know, um, on this day tonight, ABC, mm-hmm. first female reporter on Four Corners. She was a trailblazer. Yeah. Um, I was a trailblazer, I guess, in terms of producing shows. Yeah. Yes. So behind the scenes. Yeah, yeah. So there were different kind of trailblazers. But, yeah, yeah, I think we did forge the way for other women. But we were determined to show that women can do this. Absolutely. But just because gender is, you know, how does gender define you in terms of whether you can do a job or not? 100%. In our industry. In your industry. talking to the converted here. (laughs) Yeah, no, so we're both (laughs) nodding. Like, yes, yeah, absolutely. (laughs) I can say that. <laughs> Anita, talking about being in the, the the background of those shows, the process of working one on one with journalists on sixty minutes, you were the workhorse doing all the digging for talent, structuring the interviews, mm. writing the questions. I realise not all journalists work in this way. How tough was that? Was it a sign of the times? Do you think things are different now for young female journalists? Was there anyone in particular that was really hard to work with? You don't have to name names. Um, I'm, not try- I'm not trying to get you to throw someone over to, under the bus. Look, I, I think um, in terms of finding ideas, which was your original, you know, that first part, mm. I loved finding ideas. I loved looking at, in those days we'd read newspapers, watch television. We didn't have the internet. No. Um, computers were just starting out. And so you would always be talking to people about ideas and you'd be trying to, you you know, Trish, you might have said something to me and I'll think, oh, that's interesting. You might have read something and then I'll start researching it and try and dig deeper and come up with those ideas. And I love the chase of the story. Yes, I love yeah, finding really... people to tell that story. I mean, I, you know, I, at one stage I did it, and you're, I think you may relate to this, I did a story for 60 Minutes where we had um, a woman, a couple wanted to go overseas and they had triplets two-year-old triplets, and they wanted to go to Japan for two weeks. And what we did was, over a period of months, we introduced them to a couple who had never had children and who were prepared to look after triplets for two weeks, with a bit of help, but prepared to kind of drop all the fact that they didn't ever want children and actually learn and show us what it was like for them to experience having triplets, two-year-old triplets. 
for two weeks. Well, I filmed that story <laughs> and it was just incredible. Yeah. And this was in the early days of his computers and that, that, that the man who, they never wanted kids. The man would sit there with his computer, the first version of his computer, and he actually programmed everything on a floppy disk of at 12 o'clock they'd do this and at 2 o'clock they'd feed and at 2.30 they'd do this. And he had to throw all of that out. Yeah. Having triplets went nothing. Mm. Two-year-olds don't have any routine at all. So I love telling those stories. I yeah. love telling stories with social issues and, you know, where so we really did deep down in people's lives. Mm. Um, was it tough at times? Yes. Um, I would be the one pitching those kind of social issue stories because I knew that's what women like as yeah. much as men. Yeah, yeah. And so sometimes I'd have a battle pushing those because they weren't, you know, your traditional stories. They were where you had to find the talent and create a story and make that work. And I love that challenge. So and you sense, get that because your parents. Yeah, oh, gosh, yes. <laughs> in a sense, then your radar was always on at that time and you yes. had to do it the yeah, traditional totally. way because, as you said, there was no internet. So it's reading papers, it's watching no. television, it's having conversations, it's eavesdropping. <laughs> we love a good eavesdrop. Exactly. We love a good eavesdrop. I always get fascinated with, of course, you know, the glitzy or somewhat glamorous side that may be in these <laughs> industries. Mm, me too. <laughs> you know, what would be some of your biggest pinch me moments from that time in 60 Minutes? You've mentioned the travel. You've mentioned some amazing people. What What do you think of as the, wow, that was really incredible? Uh, well, I think, I mean, it's not a celebrity one, but I remember we, uh, no, we landed in Morocco and we were doing a story with an Australian adventurer called Sorrel Wilby. And I don't know if you remember, Sorrel had carried a push bike out Mount Fuji very interesting. She had a television show on Channel 9 and very interesting young woman. And she was climbing the highest peak in every country in Africa. So we were in Morocco and she was climbing what was called Mount Tumku. And I remember we got to Marrakesh, which was so exotic. And, you know, we went down into the souks and we, you know, just had the most fabulous time. And then what we did was we hired 12 um, mules and 12 mule drivers, and we trekked up into the high Atlas Mountains and went camping there with the Berber people for about a week. And it was just, yeah. it was just surreal, yeah. camping, listening to the crew snoring really loudly. <laughs> oh, the I mean, serenity. All the serenity. We had no toilet. You know, oh. you just have to, I'd have to walk off on my own and find, you know, dig, dig a, a hole, hole and just go there. And, oh. and it, it was just, so we spent 10 days trekking and, you know, on these mules with Sorrel and her husband, Chris. And then we arrived back in Marrakesh and I'd promised the crew, and I shouldn't tell you this, but it was in any case on 60 time, that we would stay in the best hotel in Marrakesh, which is one called La Mamunia which Winston Churchill and all these really famous people had stayed in for their summer holidays. So we ended this fabulous trip staying in La Mamunia in these suites, which was just fabulous. Mm, and <laughs> so from one extreme so to the other. Think, yeah, that's exactly right. But I, look, I've been, I've been not, not just at 60 Minutes, you know, throughout the Laws days when I worked with John Laws yeah. or when I worked with Andrew Benson. I mean, I, I, you know, I remember we did an interview. Uh, this was with Andrew in um, London with Bill Clinton when he was on the um, publicity trail on his autobiography. And it, it was during the Monica Lewinsky day mm, and wow. everybody was picking up the autobiography and going to Elsa Lewinsky <laughs> to read about what he was writing about Monica Lewinsky. Mm-hmm. And so we get to London. We've, um, we've got a half an hour with him in the Ritz-Carlton, which is a really upmarket hotel mm. in London. And he walked in and he just, he stares at you. His eye contact is like nothing I've seen. Mm. He knew all about our part of the world, which is really impressive. You know, he knew about Australia, he knew about what was happening in East Timor with these gas reserves, yeah, sunrise gas reserves. And he just wowed Andrew and I. He was just incredibly impressive. Yeah. In spite of the impeachment and Monica Lewinsky and all of that, he was a real statesman. Yeah, I've actually read that about him. And when I read it in your book, because I've speed read your book, and um, and when I read that, yeah, yeah, um, when I read that, I thought, well, it's all matching up to other accounts of people meeting him, that he was, you know, incredibly impressive human and the eye contact yeah very yeah yeah and it's interesting isn't it that he he knew so much because so many don't know anything about this part of the world that's exactly right the antipodes and the 
<laughs> far yeah, reaches so he, of the globe. He knew all about this part of the world and he was seriously engaged. And that was a great interview. But I mean, I, I remember, you know, look, um, I remember um, with Jane Fonda, we were actually, that was an interview we shot also in London at the Dorchester, really upmarket hotel. You don't get much more upmarket than that. And so Jane Fonda is quite edgy. You know, she's mm. kind of, you can see it from the Vietnam War days yeah, and right. she's a real actor. Yeah, true. And so we sit down in the suite and we start this interview with her. And next minute there's some banging on the on the door above. So I ring down to reception, can you, know, can you please stop the banging upstairs? Yeah, 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 we'll stop it. And so we start the interview again. And next minute there's vacuum cleaning outside the, the you know, the suite. And I can see that Jane Fonda's getting really a bit antsy about all these noises and the sort of the breaks in the interview. And so I apologise and, yeah, no, we get back onto it. And then the phone rings. So that's the third time that we've been interrupted in the middle of a really important interview. And she, by this stage, is really antsy. And so I pick up the phone and blow me down. It's Sharon Stone who's staying at the Dorchester, the actress Sharon Stone. And she says to me, you know, can you tell Jane Fonda at Sharon Stone? Um, You know, I want to talk to her. I want to catch up with her. So I relay this message (laughs) on to Jane Fonda. My this stage is like this and just wants to get to you. And she says to me, you tell her I'm, you know, you just tell her I'm too busy. (laughs) And that's it. So there. <laughs> so there you go. So there's a real picking oh, order yeah. with Hollywood celebrities and women. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And <laughs> so she has, Jane Fonda has seniority, doesn't she? Oh, totally. <laughs> totally, she yeah, yeah. Here. Now I know Sharon Stone sits a little bit lower down yeah, yeah, that, that pecking yeah. order. Okay, uh, can, I, can I take you back to the Atlas Mountains? Would you do it now? Would yeah. you go camping for the week and no toilets and would you do it now? I would. Good for you. Wouldn't you? Once an adventure, always an adventure. I can see it. Yeah, totally. Look, I mean, the great thing about 60 Minutes was you were given, you know, you had your passport, you were given an American Express card, you had to find the stories anywhere in the world, and you'd just go there. Nice. And you'd have to deliver. I mean, you know, so. Yeah, yeah, high expectations. Yeah, exactly. It was a gift. Job. Yeah, yeah. so good. It's so, so good. Anita, I'd like to move on to your dad because he is a significant yeah. part of your book and I loved reading, you know, the, the chats that the two of you used to have in the study in your home in Sydney and Kalara. This is Kalara, wasn't it? That was the name of the yes, suburb. It was. Yeah. Yes, so it was. And Trish and I are really interested in turning points in people's lives, like those moments yep. of time when something happens or a situation or a conversation occurs or something and it changes the path or it, you make a decision or something happens and it, it alters you in some way and the path that you're taking. So I just want to go yep. back to the throwaway comment about your father at the court case. He made this throwaway comment that you then you started no, questioning. Wasn't my no, who was it? One of my nephews, but even though he is a lawyer, so I just, yeah, right. it was another lawyer at the dinner party. Right. So I can well understand. Well, there were a number of lawyers Okay, there. all right, yeah. So sorry, I got my wires crossed there when I was reading. I thought it was him, but... Speed reading. So you yeah. should yeah, slow I know. down. No, you should slow oh, down. No, 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 no. There were so many lawyers there. Yeah, it's yeah. easy to get confused as okay. the okay. one. Thank you, Anita. Thank you so much. Yeah. But I want to I want to know because it, it made you question the man that you thought you knew and... I just want to know how confronting it was for you. Like, what what were you thinking at that time? Well, well, if I can just go back a little bit. When I was growing up, my father was such an influential figure in my life. Mm. And he was was a European. uh, He spoke five languages. He was very handsome. He was a much older dad when I was born. He was almost 50 when he was born, which was quite unusual in Australia in those days. Yeah. You know, now we get dads up to 70, 80, and we don't kind of blip. Well, we kind of blink, but we, we don't. We don't. Yeah, yeah. We might at 80, but, you know, 70 is still acceptable. Yeah. And so he, from a young age, I would spend an inordinate amount of time with him just talking about the world because he was so educated and cultured and he had such a big view of life. Mm. And um, and he made me feel as a young girl that I could do anything. You know, yeah. he just, he didn't see gender, you know, and he was just one of those very um, empowering kind of parents. And you know how important a parent is mm. to a child. They can make or break a child. Yeah. They can choose to make or break a child. Yeah. And they can choose to actually make you feel really strong and feel self-worth and feel courage and importance. So 
So that was my kind of background. So the dinner party that you refer to, it's after he's long passed away, my father's long passed away, and I'm at a family dinner party in the eastern suburbs of Sydney. Lots of bar- lots of lawyers, as you rightly say, <laughs> and some journalists. And we're talking about a triple murder case here in Sydney that was dominating the news. And all of a sudden, one of the barristers stops and he pauses and he says, do you know about the infamous court case from the 1950s involving your father? And I paused and I thought, what court case? What's he talking about? What? And I had this visceral reaction because both as a daughter, because I adore and adored my father. Oh, yeah. And as a journalist, because every bone in my body was tingling with intrigue about what's he talking about? What court case? Yeah. So that's how this book started. Just it, it is. It is because when I opened the book, I'm thinking, because it talks about a secret, I'm thinking, oh, your dad was part of the Nazi party or there was he was a spy or whatever. But what's revealed is quite different, isn't it? So I wanted to ask yeah. you, of all the things you uncovered about your father, what was the one that sort of shocked or surprised you the most? I think the great... Uh, love, love that he discovered in Australia. Mm-hmm. So he, he had, he had, he was born in Germany. He had discovered that he had Jewish heritage mm-hmm. as the rise of Hitler happened in Germany. Mm-hmm. He'd been jailed by the Nazis, which I didn't know anything about, um, because of this Jewish blood on his father's side, not his mother's side. And then he had had to flee persecution and ca- go to the country, the farthest away from Germany, which was Australia. And he'd arrived in the mid 1930s. Very different world to how you and I look at, yeah. you know, Sydney, New South Wales, Queensland, very different world then. Yeah. But his fiance from Germany followed him out and they married shortly after she arrived. Um, and not probably about two years later, his world and her world intersected with another couple in Sydney. Mm. And he fell madly, passionately in love mm. with the wife. And my father fell. My father fell madly, passionately in love with the wife, and she fell madly, passionately in love with my father. And um, it was a relationship that was doomed. And I knew nothing about it. Our family didn't know anything about it. And I discovered, um, as part of the divorce proceedings from his first wife, the most beautiful letter yeah. written in his words, in his European handwriting, oh um, to his first wife explaining how he'd fall in love with this other woman. Yeah. And I knew nothing about that. And honestly, it, it just impacted on me so deeply mm. to know that this great love had happened at a very, when he was 27 yes. and then had ended. And I'm not going to spoil how it ended, no. but it ended in very tragic circumstances. Mm. And I think that that single event shaped a lot of who and what he was throughout his life. Mm, interesting. And it was the letter which you include in the book is written mm. with great tenderness. That's right. Yeah. Isn't it a beautiful letter it's for a 27-year-old? Yeah. Yeah. It's right. Really, letter writing is an art that's really been lost. You know, in, in those fine. times people would mm. correspond so much. And express themselves. And express themselves yeah, so beautifully. much. Exactly. Now we're texting mm. and, you know, it's not Auto-correct and, yeah, it's not the same. Exactly. No and it's romantic. the most beautifully mm. written letter. And because it was tended in the divorce case, yeah. that's how we found it, divorce case with the first wife. And that's how we found it. But I also include another letter that he writes to me when I'm undergoing a particularly hard time in my career when I was working at the 10 Network. And I, I wake up one morning and he's actually written this beautiful handwritten note and he's left it on the, the bedside table next to me. I happen to be staying there one night. And it is the most beautifully written, empowering letter mm. from a father to a daughter. Mm. And I just, you know, I look at it and I just think I've kept every card and every letter that he sent mm. me and wrote to me because mm. they're so precious. They and are. you're right, people don't write those things these days. No, and you have them they forever. You know, they're... Yes, you do. Yeah, yeah, and you can go back to you them do. and it takes you back to those particular yes. times and it connects you to your dad because you're reading his words and his thoughts and feelings but also you're you're following his handwriting. I don't know, there's something That's really right. special about handwritten yeah. work. It's beautiful. It's, 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 it's exactly. an amazing story. And he had a very... He had a very distinct European style of writing. Mm. So when you find something that sat on the, you know, in the National Archives for yeah. 60, 70 years yeah. in your father's handwriting, it just yeah. brings, 
It's like he's there with you. Yeah, yeah. It's 100%. Quite incredible. No, I agree. Yeah, I, I totally agree I with you. I can almost feel it in my heart, like <laughs> how you must have felt when you came across that. Like, yeah. You know, yeah. 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 Physical feeling that it would have been. Yes, and I, look, I think if parents could only sort of sit down and write to their children today how they feel about who and what they are or... I think one of the big things that's come out of writing this book is that we never really know our parents. Oh, yeah. You know, because we're so selfish. We're going to school, we're playing tennis, we're doing this, that and the other. And by the time we really want to find out about our parents before you were born, it's often too late. Yeah. They've often gone. Yeah, absolutely. It's so true. And there are these rock-solid figures in your life that you just totally take for granted. But there's way yep. more to a person than meets the eye. I think it's when you totally. become when you become a parent yourself and you feel the world oh the word. You feel the world viewing you as, you know, somebody's mum or, you know, in this career or in that career. And you mm. kind of you reflect on the person you were when you were young and you were single or you were in love or whatnot and all of those stories, the journey that made you who you were and then you think, hang on, mum and dad are actually mum and dad but they were people that had oh, these journeys really too. Really rich, full, interesting that lives. That would have been so fascinating oh, yeah. in a time that we can yeah. only imagine. Oh, especially, yeah, I actually, 100%. I gave my mum a few wines the other week and I tried to, I was starting to ask a few questions. She's like, Trisha. Were you? I was I was getting I too direct with some of my questions. She's like, Trisha. <laughs> I'll keep working on it, Anita. I'll keep working on it. Can I can I tell you please do because one of my greatest regrets is I've found out all of this stuff and I can never talk to him about it. Yeah. You yes. know, he passed away twenty five years ago. So I sit on all of this and I will never be able to talk to him about it. Mm. So I would encourage you and I would encourage all of your listeners, if your parents are still alive, Mm. ask some questions. Find out about their life before you arrive. (laughs) It's funny, that whole generation are Mm. very private. You know, I think that when Mm. they went through things, it was very scandalous, it was very judgmental, so therefore they like to keep it... Quiet. And they're not used to being the centre of attention, that generation, are they? No. They, don't, they generally don't no. invite it. Oh, I'm speaking generally, of course, but, you know, not some of sharers do. like us. <laughs> like we all are today. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, it's become so That's acceptable. Right. Yeah. brilliant. Yeah. Anita, your father was married four times and the divorce from yes. his third wife, Bonnie, was very acrimonious. And I have to say the divorce raid scene in the book was like a scene from a Hollywood <laughs> bring movie. Bring them back, I say. Bring them back. <laughs> <laughs> so in the book you mention that the researching and uncovering of that incident, well, A, that just took such a long time for you to get your hands on those documents, those court documents, but it revealed fascinating insights into the private life of 1950s middle-class Australia, which is a really... I've been part of that too. Yeah, yeah. So can you explain what sorts of things were revealed to you? Yeah, so remember earlier I was telling you about the court case that I'd heard about at the dinner party of yes, years ago. yes. yes. It took us three years to track down the original court documents, That's which were crazy. housed in a warehouse in Western Sydney. And yeah. I can't tell you what it was like, uh, you know, after three years turning up at a Glebe court and seeing the original court documents from 1953, Jacoby versus Jacoby on the front, and having 600 pages of this corrosive relationship yeah. there in black and white to read as a as a because I'm still a child and a daughter yeah, even yeah. though I'm an old old child and daughter exactly. to read about the breakdown of my father's third marriage in a blow by blow description yeah. it was like War of the Roses yeah. um, and Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf it well, was incredible yeah, yeah. Well, it must have been astounding to think that you, there was so much about him that you didn't know. You were so close. Mm. Yeah. Yet there was mm. so much that he kept yeah. in his... Protected from you, do you think? Do you know what? I think I think those people who flee persecution in other countries, mm. they arrive in a new country, and this is happening to refugees today. Yes. They, if they can arrive in a new country, they're all about looking forward, not looking backwards. Yeah. And it's part of their psyche because Agreed. they can deal with the future the present and the future, but the memories of the past are really hard for them because they're fleeing somewhere and they're leaving everything they've ever known 
behind. And I think that's why I'm so excited for the people in Bilawea that they're now there. Yeah. Mm. Bilawea, sorry, <laughs> Bilawea. I'm so excited for the people in Bilawea that they're now there because we just, we just discount the importance of refugees in this country yeah. and how much they bring to our country. And yeah. so my father was a refugee. Yes, he was. So he was about looking forward, yeah. not looking back. And I think that it partly explains why he didn't talk about any of his past. Yeah. It was a lot of it was painful. Yes. And he didn't want that trauma. Oh, fully painful. And also I would imagine for um, someone like your father who was an intellect, who, who was very dignified, he would have been embarrassed by the nature yes, of the was. divorce, I think. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Just what I read in that chapter, I thought this th- th- these two people don't align. No wonder the marriage didn't work because, no, you know, she I, was just so far removed from the type of person that he was. Don't you agree? Yes, that's right. He, yes, and totally, mm. totally. She had been born, she was, a, someone, um, she was born in country New South Wales. She brought two young kids into the marriage. Yeah. My father already had a... Um, a child, a daughter from his second marriage. And so he wanted a mother. He wanted a mother for his daughter mm. along with the two kids. But what he got was a woman who was a, almost an infomaniac. She was an alcoholic. Yeah, she had addiction. And I think she was in performance mode like a lot of yeah. women do before yeah. they get married. Yeah, when right. they're kind of, you know, mm. pitting down somebody. I think she was in that performance <laughs> mode. And I think shortly <laughs> after they married. She's laying the she trap. <laughs> My father loved women, no question. Yeah. He loved women. Yeah. And, you know, she played on that. Yeah. So, yeah. And, and it's interesting, their marriage went south within, you know, a few months. They yes. had a honeymoon overseas of six months, yeah. which is extraordinary. Yeah. And he was doing business as well. But she was getting drunk all the time. Mm. She was accusing him of being emotionally cruel and, by the time they got back after the honeymoon, the marriage was almost ended. Yeah. It was just so toxic. Yeah, it's, it's, um, it's an extraordinary and, part of his life. I found it was just yeah. absolutely extraordinary. Mm. But um, I can certainly and, and see I what she he, found in him because, you know, he's very appealing. Like he was, you know, very yeah. attractive, very distinguished, you know, very intelligent, successful, stable, yeah. Yeah. Obviously well, very much a romantic. Yes, I think so. I, I do think he was a And he was looking for love. And yeah. he, I think he just had, unfortunately, he chose a couple of women that weren't the right women for him. Yeah. And we all make those mistakes with blokes. God, I don't know about you two, yeah. but I'm just certainly in my past made some shockers. <laughs> oh, yes. But, you know, I didn't oh, marry yes. them. That was the difference. Yes, that's right. Yeah, exactly. Yes. You, you know, know we're, we're, today you can live with somebody or be with somebody and not marry them. In those days, the natural progression with a relationship was to marry them, yeah. irrespective of whether they were the right partner or not. Yeah. And really, their marriage became like, you know, who's afraid of Virginia Woolf? It was just mm-hmm. so toxic. Yeah. And you're right, what happened was uh, she eventually sued him for what was called constructive desertion, yes. leaving a marriage either, you know, leaving for cruelty or withdrawing sexual services. Yeah. And then that morphed into a divorce raid, yes. which was quite extraordinary. That's just amazing. It's a really, really amazing is. part of the book. Like you are watching a movie. Like mm. it yeah. just uh, in fact, hit the whole story, his yeah. life. It's really, it's really interesting. All of the different seasons of his life and the different roles he's played is just so astounding. Obviously, we don't want to spoil it for everyone. No, 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 we don't. No, no. So so many different twists and turns (laughs) that are so fascinating. Yeah, I know. And you know, look, I I feel exactly the same way. I feel, and also because the final chapter has a reveal that's really poignant. Yeah. And it brings you back to the beginning. It does. And so I've, I've, I've thought, I've thought. Oh, yes, I feel like it's a movie too. It's yeah. just oh, it's because so... it's transatlantic and it's just yeah. and it oh, talks yeah. to an Australia that we no longer know about. Yes, um, and a number of people have said to me we don't know much about the thirties, forties, fifties, sixties in Australia, and I think the book talks to a lot of who and what we were in those years. Mm, mm. Which I just guess through my father's story, absolutely, and I guess that sort of goes back to the the question or the sorry the comment that you made about the nineteen fifties middle class Australia. Just even the whole divorce yeah. thing and the divorce raid and all that stuff. It shows you 
how it happened. Like you were saying, people didn't live together to test the waters, did they? No. They just no. dived into marriage and then tried to figure it out. I always that. laugh yeah. when I'm watching, you know, like a period piece or, you know, something oh, from yeah. that era where yeah. they, you know, go out on one date and next minute they're betrothed. Mm. Like, yeah. mm. And it's that easy. You've kissed her, you've got to marry her. Yeah. You've got to make yeah. her honourable. Exactly full on. Right. Absolutely full well, on. You, what you could go imagine, wrong? Well, you can imagine with the divorce rate. So until the 1970s in Australia, and most of your listeners won't know this, you actually had to catch somebody in the act. Yeah. I yes. mean, you know, in the act, like having yeah. sex. Yeah. With a private detective, with a photographer, getting those photos. In order to mount a case for divorce. Yeah. God, it's, it was, it's uh, almost so, comical, isn't it, really? But, and so archaic. Just, like it was like that in the 19th, 18th and 19th century. But no photos, obviously. Yeah. But you, oh, someone I'm sure was, there's still people out there hiring <laughs> private investigators to this day. It's not a dying art. No, no, no. They'll never be out of work. Anita, I want to move on to another section of the book because I'm just conscious of time. Unfortunately, wish we had you for a couple of hours. Um, at the age of 31, you're involved in a catastrophic motorbike accident in which you lost your leg. And in your book, you talk about the fact that you have always been uncomfortable talking about your loss when many others in the same situation are not. And you use a, what we call like a flip it like men mindset, you know, flipping like a negative to a positive, if you like, um, mm. focusing mm. on what is possible rather than what isn't possible. And I found that whole section of the book, like with your accident and your recovery and the impact it had on your dad and, and your family and everything, I found it really interesting. So just in terms of that sort of flippant mindset, was that a conscious decision you made or is that just naturally your character? Ooh, <laughs> I think it's naturally my character. Yep. I think I'm all, I'm probably a bit like my father. I'm all about moving forward. And if this happened on our farm up in northwestern New South Wales and it was the definition of an accident. Accident and accidents, yes. you know, happen in a split second and then they can have catastrophic consequences. Yep. And part of it was because I was so far out in the country and it took so long to get to the hospital. I think also because I was working in television, I was working for 60 minutes mm -hmm. and, you know, I was working in an industry where image is everything. Mm -hmm. And also I, and so I was very mindful of, I, did, I didn't want to be a woe's me. Yeah. I mean, this had happened. It didn't mean that it wasn't devastating for me and for my family and the consequences were devastating, but there's nothing I could do to change it. And so I'm all about getting on with life. Yeah. You know, I was very physically active before this happened. You know, I'd jump on a motorbike, I'd dive all over the world, I'd play comp squash, I'd, you know, you surfing, I rode a surfboard, yeah. everything. I yeah. just, I loved what I, I loved what I could do. You know, I'm yeah. very engaged with the world. And so I just, I also didn't. I also didn't feel, feel it was other people's business, yep. and it was my it was my issue. Uh, I would deal with it, and I, you know, I just I'm not a woes me. Look at me, yep. you know. I, I didn't want to be defined in that way. Yep. And I think the the only reason I write about it is because of the impact that it had on my father. Yes. And two of my very close mates had read the manuscript, and I had wrestled with putting any of me in there. Mm. So it wasn't just the accident. Any of me. It was just about his story. Mm. And they said, you need to put some stuff in about you and your career. So so readers will want to go on your journey. So I want to hear about it, the people that you've worked with and some of the stories. And then one of them said to me, you know, you can't write about your father and his latter years without writing about the accident that happened and how it impacted on him. Because your parents, you know, if something was to happen to your child, doesn't matter how old your child is, and they can't change, you can't change that. Yeah. It's devastating. And that's exactly what happened. Yes, yes. Anita, interesting when you're talking about that event, what I have picked up on then was it didn't define me. I didn't want to anyone mm. else to have to worry about it. It wasn't anyone else's story, et cetera, et cetera. Have you ever drawn the comparison between the similarities of that and your father? Not actually. I have now. <laughs> yeah. That is a really good question. I, I, I you know, that, yes, that's exactly are right. Are you your father's daughter? <laughs> yes. Yes. Without, without question. And, and that's exactly what I was alluding to earlier about finding out about your parents. Yeah. Because what I've discovered through writing this book is the number of parallels in his life and my life mm. that I never knew. Mm. I never knew because I simply wasn't 
thinking about my life. I wasn't thinking about my life. I was thinking about his life. And then I get to the end of the book and I realise, well, I've had a career in communication. He's had a lifetime in communication. Um, uh, He was all about looking forward. I was all about looking forward. He was all about supporting and actively doing stuff about mental health. I've told numerous stories about mental health and being engaged. Um, uh, he mentored Carla Zampatti and Dick Smith yeah. and various other people. I, I mentor yeah. women in media and all of these parallels came about through, so you're absolutely right, Trish, all about through writing this book. Yeah. I had no idea. It's just amazing, <laughs> Oh, I know it, it is. It's, and it's a it's a really, really, it's just such a good read, Anita. It really is. It's, um, oh, thank it's you. fabulous. I have another question in regards to your sister, Linda. Yeah. And, and because I was really moved by her, her story, like I found there was a sense of sadness, you know, with her being in boarding school from such a young age and growing up mm. mostly in, in boarding school. But I feel happy for you and for Linda that you have such a lovely, seemingly lovely relationship as sisters. Mm. And I just want to ask, because she doesn't seem to harbour any resentment, which it could be very easy to do, I would imagine, I guess seeing you as a favoured daughter sort of thing. So how would you describe your relationship with Linda and how did you manage to maintain it? So Linda is my half-sister. Yes, yes. And I don't, I don't, and so her mother was my father's second wife. Yes. And so she's, she's much older than I am. We grew up fairly separately because mm. 12 years is a big age gap between children. Yeah. And so I didn't really know her growing up. But since particularly uh, over the last, um, well, the dinner party that I alluded to was at her place. Yeah. Um, yeah. So we're very close. And we've become, as we've gotten older, we've become closer and closer. Mm. And actually writing this has actually <clears throat> been really a cathartic process for her. And I don't like to, you know, do too much of a deep dive because it's her life and I don't want to, you know, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, imperil her life. But we've, our relationship has actually become really, really good and it's very close mm. and it's actually been strengthened by this process because I've taken all my family on the journey writing this book so that everybody felt comfortable. Yeah. Once I made the decision that it wasn't just a family history, it was going to be a book that would be out there for yeah, people to read. Right. I wanted every every member of my family to be comfortable with that mm. decision mm. and I wouldn't have done it if they weren't, including and mostly Linda. Linda, yeah. That the whole synchronicity of this, of you being at that dinner party, Mm. that comment being made and then this entire journey of Mm. discovery is just incredible. I know. You know, for you, for Lindy, for all the people involved, I've just, it's it's a fascinating story and I absolutely adore it. Yeah. People get the book, listen, read it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, it's great. well, I've got to say there are a lot more secrets in secrets beyond the screen than you and I have shared. Oh, my um, gosh. When so are we going to dinner to talk about those? <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh, my mind. I'm a very visual person. So when when I'm reading it and when I'm hearing about oh, your yeah. dad and, you know, the marvellous moustache, you know, I've got it. I've always got it all cast already. The movie's all cast in my mind. Oh, yeah, yeah. Very visual. <laughs> okay. I was in that divorce raid. I was watching that. <laughs> that was Everything's on a reel in my mind. Yeah. <laughs> oh, well, you're welcome to read 600 pages of a. a oh, don't even say that. I'm down there in a flash. <laughs> <laughs> don't tempt me. <laughs> Anita, you are just absolutely extraordinary, and it has been such an honour and such a pleasure to chat with you today. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah, really we, appreciate it. We really appreciate it. So we do have our wrap-up question for, you. for take you. It, take it away, Trish. What would the, if you could time travel, if you had a TARDIS, what would the 50-ish Anita go back and what advice would she give to her 20-year-old self or a 20-ish-year-old self? I tell you what, it was something that I heard a Swedish transvestite say on enough rope. Oh, yay. And I now know it comes from Oscar Wilde. He was a transvestite who, he belonged to what was called a living library where you could take the person out and actually take them home. It was a great idea. Gosh, I love that. Yeah, so so he said, and I loved it. that old saying. Sorry, you know, why buy a book when you can borrow one from the library? Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and it is called The Living Library. I thought it was such a great idea. 
And if I was talking to my 20-year-old self, I would quote what he said, which was, be yourself because everyone else is taken. Love it. Oh, yes. Yeah. And I just think that's really, own your own space. Own your own space. And also the other thing I would say is that gender, um, (laughs) you know, gender is important. I always thought gender was irrelevant if you could do the job properly, but in fact gender is relevant. And we need to really use our gender and forge forward as much as we can. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's been such a pleasure. Um, Thank you both very much. Um, Look, I've really enjoyed today. Thank you. It's been a hoot. Much appreciated. Yeah, we're so honoured. Yeah, we are. Your story is just. Yeah, we love we love having a hoot with our guests. That's for sure. And I'd like to have dinner. I'd like to see the next six hundred pieces of six hundred pages, and I'd also like to see the film, the stuff that didn't get in the book. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Thank you. I'll bring the wine. (laughs) Yeah. Or scotch, whatever you want. Just tell me. So that's it from us today. If you would like to know more about Anita's book, Secrets Beyond the Screen, we've put links in our show notes for you. And don't forget you can follow us on Instagram at don'tgiver50 and email us at hello at don'tgiver50.com.au. And remember our gorgeous 50-ishers. Life is for living. Don't give a 50 because we're all 50 and awesome regardless of age and living and ageing is an absolute privilege. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out of pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.